How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the many mysteries of our past. I'm your host today, and with me is our special guest, author and researcher, Gretchen Cornwall. Thanks for joining us today, Gretchen. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It is it is a privilege. I can't Gretchen, wait to... Yeah, thank you for joining us. Sorry. Gretchen is a member of the British Archaeological Association, trustee for the Friends of the Shell Grotto, a singer-songwriter for World Tree Music, has appeared on the History Channel, Curse of Oak Island, and for over 18 years has been cataloging and researching medieval carvings, artifacts, and historic Templar sites. And uh, thanks for joining us again today. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the research Gretchen has done in her book, The Secret Dossier of a Knights Templar of the Sangreal, which accounts for the hidden history of the Knights Templar through a mysterious contact related to them. Gretchen follows the story of the persecution of these knights and their survival through various forms and groups into the modern day. Hope that intro did you justice there. <laughs> and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored as well. You've summed that up very well. I appreciate it. It's uh, easy to forget, um, uh, and I don't like writing bi biographies. <laughs> I never have, so I appreciate you summing, summing it up uh, that way, my path. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a few years since I've delved back into my first book. My mind has been very focused on the Mohican Reservation in Wisconsin. And I am looking forward to pursuing the project there. There is much yet to uncover, but I'm very pleased to be asked detailed questions. I might, I might add, by yourself, Jake. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a, a breath of fresh air to to be honest to be asked such detailed questions. You're truly the first person that has drilled down to uh, forgive the saying, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, I, I appreciate the level with which you have explored my, my first work. It was always meant to be a springboard for future works, and I did study very comprehensively, except for a few subjects, which I purposely avoided because they are too big. I, real, I sat down one day and I realized, I thought, I've got to put a, a draw a line under this. This is getting too big. Uh, and it did start as a project about the Margate Shell Grotto, which is not well known of here in the States, but is quite famous in the UK. And life is quite odd sometimes. Sometimes it will take you where you are meant to go. And when I moved to the UK in 2002, it took me months to realize that I was down the street from what could be a very potent and important location of Templar thought. Uh, so, and that is actually how I met my contact for the book was through Michelle Grotto. I believe you were going to mm. ask some questions about this, so I apologize for jumping through and just starting to discuss this, but um, uh, the project did indeed need, was going to start out as that, as the Shell Grotto, but what I was constantly being given um, during phone calls, a few meetings, emails, eventually eclipsed my original project and I had to put the Shell Grotto on a back burner. And my writing partner 
the time, my writing partner at the time, when I started uh, the book about the Shell Grotto, he actually uh, let the local newspaper that we were engaging in this, and he was a um, historian, a local historian. Uh, he uh, passed in 2010, but uh, we had joined forces. He put an article in the paper, and then the owner of the grotto calls and says, Gretchen, there's this guy who's called, and he said he's a Templar, and here's his number. I don't know. Do you want to call him? <laughs> so he contacted myself, and that's how things began. And I believe that was about 2006 when that took off. And I, I have all of my research for the Shell Grotto on a back burner, and I do plan to get back to it. But the Templars have taken over my projects. <laughs> So uh, that's that's where it sits at the moment. Um, but uh, uh, forgive me, I certainly don't want to take over the interview. If you have a direct question you want to ask, otherwise I'll just talk. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> okay, okay. He's a very intriguing individual, and not what I thought I would be encountering at all. Uh, from uh, Cumbria, actually. Of course, that border was fluid with Scotland, and uh, especially during the medieval era. Uh, but I have changed his name in the book uh, to protect his family. He, he is part of a very large family. Uh, the Scots would call it a clan, uh, a, tr a tribe basically related by family connections. And uh, so he became John Temple in my book. And uh, he does not wish to be a public person. So I've respected that. I've actually not spoken with him in almost two years and have embarked upon other projects uh, regarding the Templars that I have wanted to pursue, uh, including Oak Island and also Wisconsin. But uh, much of what he presented to me was interesting, such as uh, the monolith, uh, the energy monolith, obelisk, that stretches from the UK across to the New World. And the uh, spire of that cuts right across the uh, Rhodes, uh, Rhodes Tower, uh, the Newport Tower, excuse me, and other key locations. And the base of that was pinned to uh, St. Saibardou in France, not within miles of Chateau de la Rochefoucauld. And just to say this and highlight how families through centuries retain information, but they also forget. He did not actually have information regarding the Rochefoucauld family. So Templars are human beings that do not exist outside of human infrastructures, such as the grocery store, the post office, needing to go see the doctor, your friends, your family, getting a cold, etc. And through many centuries, information gets lost uh, or it changes. Uh, but I would like to light, liken that energy structure, if I may, to the Chartres Cathedral Labyrinth. 
you may not be able to visit, but if you have a photograph of the labyrinth at the cathedral, you can actually walk it with your finger in meditation and immerse yourself in that place just by following your finger. Of course, you have to take it seriously. So likewise, you can follow a ley line, these energy lines that were presented in the, in the book, um, but you can follow those lines with your inner sight, with your mind. So that is something that uh, adepts through the centuries have known uh, how to do uh, with their inner sight, with their feelings. And the Chartres Cathedral is incredibly important for its walk of sacredness, its holy walk, a holy pilgrimage to the center of not only your being, but also the center of the, the physical labyrinth. So you can partake of these things, even though you may not be able to travel there yourself. And that's, that's a powerful tool in anyone's spiritual progress going forward. So I did want to bundle all, the, all of those concepts to, together. And uh, I have had the good fortune to be at the cathedral on more than one occasion. And it is meant to be overwhelming. It's meant to deliver an experience. It's meant to draw you upward in amazement and get you out of your present. It's, it's, it's literally like cutting across your present day uh, mind chatter and to help you focus on what is intended for this sacred place. And likewise, the locations on the map that are in the book that if you can study remotely using your internet connection or your own inner site uh, as well, or physically go there yourself. It's important uh, to, when you're walking with your imagination, your imagination is always the key, to, to see yourself in those pictures, to plant yourself there uh, in, in a way that many of us will never be able to go to the Holy, Sepul Holy Sepulcher or the Dome of the Rock, uh, where the Templars uh, first planted their flag, if you will because it is too much an upheaval politically, but also economics play an important part in most people's lives. So if you can't go, go up here which, with which you were blessed, the instrument you were blessed with. So I hope that helps to some degree. Um, oh, that's good. I love the symbolism. It's, it's very much like the concept of the macrocosm, the microcosm that they reflect each other. The body reflects these architectural structures and buildings, cathedrals that they built throughout Europe. So absolutely, that's a very important point. Uh, we are uh, very much science-based, but we truly can't ignore, uh, to our folly, the sacredness of the human being. And if you watch the movie Avatar, one of the most famous films uh, in financial history, it is a wonderful way to explain our connection to the circle of life, to the earth, to each other. We are all truly connected with each other. We're all built to interface 
with each other, with the great divine, with with uh, God uh, and and these these sacred uh, uh, forces. So and each location has an intention, especially in Europe. They're old. They uh, have been trod many times. The Camino Trail to Compostela is meant to shake you out of your patterns so that you can embrace new patterns. And when you reach the Cathedral of St. James, you are awarded, if you will, your shell, uh, that your badge that you actually changed your body, changed your state, and walked to this famous cathedral. So I admire I'm glad you brought our... that up. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I've been researching recently actually is the the Compostela and uh, St. James yes. and the idea of the shell, uh, specifically the order of Santiago, which were almost like a Spanish equivalent to the Knights Templar. I don't know if you know anything about them. Well, uh, you know, uh, there's all, every day is a learning day, and uh, no one knows it all. And uh, some things can fly away when you least expect as well. So, uh, but yes, the um, <clears throat> Templars uh, had powerful preceptories across Europe. And the uh, Spanish king was known to have said to the French king and the Inquisition, we will not surrender our new friends who are very angry, battle-hardened, and with swords. If you want them, you can come and get them. <laughs> so yes, uh, uh, the Spanish preceptories there changed their names and remained where they were. And it was a deep shock when the French king laid the groundwork for the uh, downfall of the Templar order. <clears throat> Nobody could conceive that they could be brought down because they were so successful and had a track record of a good 200 years. So everyone was used to, and this is the, the folly of the human being. Everything's always been the same way since we were born, since our grandfather's time. So they're just going to continue the same way. But the truth is technology is changing all the time. Human beings, uh, the borders shift all the time. Uh, the greed of humanity can cause great calamity <clears throat> to neighbors, neighboring states, etc. So the more things stay, stay the same, the more they change, <laughs> etc. Um, but uh, yes, the uh, I have never taken on board the straight-up academic that says. The Templars are gone. The Pope canceled the Templars, therefore the Templars no longer exist. Well, these were hard, battle-ready men in their prime. They had ships. They had armor. They had war horses. They had cash reserves. They had massive states. But they were also supported by a network of trade. They were trading with the merchant guilds and cities. So they were part of the trading system. They were the judiciary. So it's, it's, it's akin to saying Costco is evil. Let's get rid of Costco. So, you know, that's ridiculous. So, so, but all those people that work at Costco, 
and I deeply hope conspiracy people who are watching this does not go out tomorrow and say that Costco is evil. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a business model that they that that has been very successful. You can go and get just about anything at a lower price, which is wonderful. But but you know it's uh, these these uh, perceptions. Well, in the same way, they play and, such an integral role to society, like yes. the Templars did to to medieval Europe. That it's something you can't get rid of without having devastating consequences. It, well, exactly, and and granted, the Costco I don't know how true that is with Costco. Yeah. Well, it doesn't have the same sacred uh, right. level of reverence, uh, but not everyone who joined the order was on a horse, and it took three to six men to keep a Templar on a horse. So you had uh, big working farms. I visited one a few years ago in England. The barn is massive. They were completely engaged in farming and in trading with Europe, supplying the Holy Land. They were building ships, renting ships, buying ships. So they had, they had tackled land. They had control of the sea. And they were, in my estimation, about ready to carve out, perhaps in conjunction, permission with, say, the, the Counts of Toulouse, perhaps. Uh, no, that came later. The Counts were gone by that time. Um, but they may have been trying to carve out their own southern state. This isn't too much of a stretch because Portugal is a Templar state. And as I understand it, the uh, first king of Portugal was the nephew of Bernard de Clairvaux. So he is a, a mover and silent shaker behind the Knights Templar from day one. And to my knowledge, and I wish to be humble here, one must always be ready to hear something new or to overturn your own theory. But when I started researching the Templars, I discovered Bernard de Clairvaux, and that's how I felt about him. And I just was so blown away by his accomplishments as a human being, as a man and a leader, that several chapters ended up being dedicated just to him. He, he is an impressive individual and was, of course, canonized. Oh, my word. At age 16, he has 30 of his male relatives, some of them married, uh, knights, uh, well off, uh, enjoying their life on their farms. And he gets all of them to follow him into one of the failing Cistercian houses. There were only two left by this time. So he, along with the head of the order of the day, completely revitalized everything, developed a cookie cutter uh, plan that could be rolled out for far less money to nobles, princes, dukes that could not afford higher end, more expensive abbeys. You had, it's like McDonald's, you had to pay for the franchise. So uh, the Cistercians knew what they were doing. They didn't demand and require the amounts of gold, gilded. Uh, accoutrements, bejeweled paint, statues, paintings, on and on and on. The emphasis was on pure vaulting architecture that, that would ennoble your thoughts. And 
Bernard was very well known for maintaining a slim weight. He, uh, his bedroom, if you will, was under a stairwell. He wore the plain white robes like the other Cistercians. He traveled with a, a few scribes and he traveled a lot. He was very, uh, uh, no, he was known for that. Uh, they fed the poor outside their doors. They, they rolled out hundreds of Cistercian abbeys. And he did something that was quite unthinkable at the time, and he put a sword in the hands of uh, a Cistercian, renamed him the uh, Knights Templar. The rule of the order is virtually the same with a few exceptions. One, they were allowed to eat protein because uh, they had to. And this is something that uh, had to be changed as time went on because this, the, the, the Cistercians were pescatarians. They ate fish um, and what they could uh, off their, their, the land. And they only took land that was given to them that nobody else wanted. Uh, they turned swamps into growing fields. They, they developed uh, fish ponds. They were of such a high engineering skill level that they could take water from three miles away and uh, water their fields, keep their fish happy. But the Templars were rooted in town versus the, the Cistercians, which were based in the countryside. So uh, it was quite a shock at the time to take a monk and create a warrior out of him, but that's what they chose to do. And I'm convinced that Bernard de Clairvaux sent men in cooperation with other uh, knights that developed the Templars to Temple Mount in order to retrieve ancient objects from the time of Christ and if not before. And I do believe they succeeded as well. Uh, Bernard de Clairvaux was a scholar, an academic with access to anybody he wished to when it came to uh, uh, other scholars to back him up in research. So they knew what they were doing. So. I guess I should let, let you ask a question. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts at this juncture? Um, it's, forgive me, it, it, it floors me that people think that the Templars disappeared when the Pope snapped his fingers. For one thing, I do not believe he was a legally elected pope, Clement. Uh, Philip kidnapped the prior pope. The man was rescued by force, but he died of, of stress a few days later. He then had his favorite elected. Philip then moved the Vatican. At, in, into where uh, into France, where he could maintain a hold on the Vatican. Overnight, he became the de facto pope. Not only did he have one of the largest standing armies in Europe, he was very wealthy. Uh, but he was uh, he took in 1306 the wealth of the the Jewish Jewish population and expelled them, and then of course in 1307 he took the wealth of the Templars. And he was in debt to them through costly foreign wars. His people were near rebellion, and he nearly uh, died as a result. Uh, his 
entourage was uh, assaulted in the streets and happened to be near the temple in Paris, and they took him in and protected the king that, that night. And it may have been there where he realized, because he was in their inner sanctum, that they had more wealth than perhaps he wished that they had. He wanted to become their grandmaster. They refused him. And then, of course, proceeded to do everything they, that he could to get rid of them. And if you control the papacy, you control the Templars because the Templars only answered to the Pope. So uh, the Sheenon document, the Sheenon parchment that uh, Pope Clement wrote and did not use, it's very possible he meant it. He meant to, to absolve the Templars. That document came out on the heels of the Da Vinci Code film. And for, for myself, I'm not anti-Catholic, and I do like this current pope. I think he is trying very hard to be uh, to care for his fellow human beings around the world. But it is with some cynicism on my part that I do think the Sheenon parchment was released to the public because it was on the heels of the Da Vinci Code. It was their way of trying to pull in potential interested parties into the Catholic faith. And uh, I do not doubt Dr. Barbara Frail's uh, capacity as an academic. I just doubt the timing. Within 700 years, no one in the Vatican thought to pardon these men, thought to say that a greedy French king perpetrated this. Uh, these are men without blame. So, yeah, I'm a bit cynical on that front. Um, but politics, whenever you have a lot of money, a large organization, it's peopled with subdivisions. Uh, I watched a very interesting documentary, if I may, on the Vatican. And it was unfortunately on, on uh, uh, pedophilia within the church. And this very brave uh, reporter who was chasing this one priest in particular around the world and where he went, he was protected. And she caught up with him in South America. And the uh, uh, orders within the Catholic Church that he was being protected within, uh, it's not as if the Pope can flip a switch and then everybody follows through. These orders are powerful. They almost have their own life of themselves. So just because the upper brass wants something positive to happen doesn't mean lower echelons that have their own money, have their own leaders, are going to play ball and, and come into the 21st century with integrity and to protect their followers, protect children and women and vulnerable people. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, but Philip LaBelle became the de facto pope when he had Clement placed on the papal throne. And then that was it. And unfortunately, the Templars, being human, were just kind of crossing their fingers and hoping nothing bad would happen. I, I'm sure that as Philip's behavior declined, it became more aggressive and passive aggressive. It was noted and trust started to diminish, but uh, the 
orders to arrest the Templars went out one month prior to the arrest. They were sealed. One month they went out to all of the king's men, as it were. So the Templars are trading. They're embedded in their community. They know the families. Uh, you know, it's it, everybody knew who the families that were that supported the Templars. So, so somebody along the line is either just going to get curious, or they're they actually have people they care about in the Templar Order, and they're going to open the sealed document and then leak that information out. Right. Uh, I think it's it, almost inevitable that. Yeah. That they saw something coming and that the, the idea that it was 1307 to 1314, it's almost impossible that within that seven year time span that some of them could have escaped. And Absolutely. I did want to bring something up because I was watching an interview, another one you did uh, before we did this one. Uh, and I think it might have been with Alessandra and you were talking about the same thing, how uh, the Templars had a good knowledge beforehand that this persecution was kind of on the way. And with all the signs that you mentioned uh, coming from the the King of France and uh, his interaction with the Pope, I think that was very important. Yes, and they were diplomats. Uh, Jacques de Molay was the head of his own state without borders. They were brothers without borders. They answered only to the Pope. So if he couldn't, Philip, couldn't infiltrate the Templars and take them over from there and swell his army with their numbers, then the way to do it was to gain control of the papacy. And the papacy is uh, that time uh, of the Vatican being in France. Those are called the exile years. Uh, you, that lasted for decades. Uh, eventually, uh, it, it, things were replaced back to the Vatican. But um, uh, I have to admit, I'm not good at remembering uh, all dates, all places, all names. So uh, things, except for for a few pillars, do do go. But well, with all uh, the research you've done, I'm sure it's hard to remember everything. So it is. It is. Uh, so I found so your book phenomenal is Thank all you. the research that you mentioned in it. I, I was surprised you were able to fit so much research into your book. It's uh, It was so wonderful, all the research worked, put into it. I truly appreciate that. It was, uh, uh, there were times when it truly, uh, it's difficult. Uh, it is difficult. And I admit by the time it came to publish and it, the files went out, I almost didn't care because I'd worked so hard on it for nine years. And of course, I'm grateful I stuck with it. But uh, it's any labor of love is going to have its ups, its downs, its difficult times with other people. Uh, I've learned a great deal. I've had successes and I've learned uh it's not a smooth path uh and it's more hard work peppered by moments of elation when i uh, come across a new piece of information that i have done everything i can to vet i become so adrenalized i can't sit and i have to pace the house i have to make coffee get some water and i literally pace for a half an hour because it's so riveting that I, I just can't put it down. And it's, it's like 
an athlete must feel when they've dunked that basket or hit a home run or, you know, the hole in one. Um, but it's, it helps me make sense of my life. I wouldn't want to do anything else. I can't say that uh, I am wealthy as a result. I'm not. But this is uh, a passion. And I've found I'm fairly good at it. I seem to have a knack for finding new uh, information. People respond to me and come and talk to me about their projects. And I certainly cannot respond to all. I only have the same 24 hours that everybody else has. Right. Uh, but I have been approached by so many intriguing people over the years. And I came to realize that these stories are unique that are held in families. They're ancient. They may not have everything, uh, but these people are out there. They're very guarded. Uh, I, I would say that the Inquisition has been very hard on Templarism, on Templars. Uh, I learned one thing recently. If you watch, and so far I think I've watched it eight times now, season one, season two is forthcoming, for which I am grateful. Carl Cookson and Hamilton White of the Lost Relics of the Knights Templar. Yeah, we were talking about that with our last oh, interview. Oh, it's magnificent. And they do take you through a journey that is very human. And they are trying to get down to uh, what happened to these brave men and women who, who were part of the Templar Order and what drove them to do the near impossible feats that they did of architecture, of withstanding the test of time, of the belief what was it that they pinned their world on that gave them such personal power to withstand the Inquisition? Uh, so in the fifth episode of Lost Relics, it ends on a very poignant, very sad note. I don't really want to to ruin the, that that progression for anybody, but... Portugal is a key Templar kingdom state. Uh, Freddy Silva put that on the map, for which I, I'm grateful to him for doing that. Uh, Kathleen, Dr. Kathleen Ball is working with him right now on Portuguese Templars in Brazil. I know Sean Williamson has also spent six months researching in Brazil. But the Inquisition came to Portugal. They stayed for a few hundred years. And they proceeded to execute 40,000 people. And uh, it's no wonder uh, that, that these families, uh, and this was in 15-something, that these Templar-related families are so secretive if the Inquisition at that time was out to get them. And the, the Inquisition has never been called off. It is now called the Donation of Constantine. And that name was changed in the 60s. So something to be aware of. I myself am not, I don't leave my back door unlocked. And that's just, I think, good practice for any 21st century human being today. Because there is an exponential number of people out there who will take advantage, just on the human level, 
or on other levels if they can. And quite often, frankly, get the wrong end of the stick and act on the wrong set of information and cause mayhem. So just uh, something to think about there. Um, yeah, we can get into some of the questions because I have quite a few now. But uh, I, I love everything we've been talking about so far. But specifically, yeah, I want to get into the the contact that you mentioned in the book. And I think that was one way that your book really stood out was you were able to have access to this almost primary source or this connection to the Templars. And it was amazing. So as far as uh, your, Thanks. your contact, what, what can you, or can you not say about him? He was a very gifted individual. Insights of of clarity gifts of clarity that i believe are are how do i say this gently above normal human activity this is uh, a tradition that's closely guarded within templar families these initiatic traditions have over the centuries because the templars had been trading with the general public and you may adopt a son or a daughter let alone have a uh, genetic son or daughter uh, and family doesn't always pick up on on human potential so adopting someone from outside is permitted this particular group that he represented is strictly familial, it is strictly family. But I found any number of surprising uh, events that one would ascribe to psychical gifts. Uh, uh, let's just be blunt about it. If you go back and take on board the bloodline theory and just briefly if jesus is called rabbi in the bible i certainly do not mean to diminish anyone's faith i actually am very uh i feel it's very important to acknowledge freedom of religion and i do not mean this in a political sense whatsoever but if you go back, and this is just my estimation, I'm not alone in this, and I have had other Catholic priests that I've come across say this, if God is able to hold together the universe in a divine mind, why can't God have a son that has come to earth of the Davidic line? I do believe that he was meant to literally be the physical king of Egypt. Or, excuse me, that was an interesting faux pas. All right. Uh, but in order to be called rab rabbi, in order to become a king, you had to have a wife, you had to have children. So we're, we're looking at somebody who was astounding in every way at the, at the, at the top of the ladder, if you will. Uh, it's... Uh, that family, he was one of eight. That 
DNA flowing into southern France and eventually into Europe, it's going to show up at some point in other family branches through the centuries. It's going to show up. And, and DNA is being studied by hard, cold scientists right now for family memories. And what has been gifted to humanity is a tradition of a great teacher. And it is not in isolation, the individual I met. I was very grateful to have that connection and have since met other individuals with similar capacities who are also of Templar families. And I well, there's no want... other better source than someone that's personally connected to them like that. Absolutely. So I think that made so... your book stand out to a very great extent. And I, I loved that you were able to draw upon that to, to develop your book. It was a, a rarity for which I am uh, protective of and grateful. And um, uh, I don't think that all Templar families in Europe have all the information anymore because when the order was broken up, kingdoms developed hard borders. And that's when brothers without borders had to become loyal to the kings they served. But these traditions nonetheless were passed down, hence my contact in Northern England. Um, this individual does not want to be in the public light anymore, has a family, uh, wants to protect uh, their privacy. But as I have said, I have met others since then. And I enjoy and am very privileged to receive messages from people who I believe have a piece of the puzzle. But there are schools uh, and Christ said, you know, what I can do, you can do. Of course, I'm paraphrasing, and I'm certainly not biblically stating this in, in the manner in which it was originally said. He spoke Aramaic, so I can't. But uh, if you look at the Dark Age saints, and I became very interested, I was told to focus on one saint in particular. He's not well known. He is a patron saint of uh, Galway. But uh, he goes by two names, St. Mungo and St. Kentajern. If you look at his background, he produces miracles. And if you look at the Dark Age saints, for myself, as time went on, I no longer looked at these individuals as if it was some sort of a, um, a superstition, that their gifts were uh, propaganda. Uh, that may certainly be the case that there's propaganda, but I do believe that many Dark Age saints had uh, anointed capacities, and Christed, anointed is the same thing, so initiated. So we were meant to follow in those sacred footsteps and did those feet in ancient times. Uh, uh, step upon England's green. I believe that is yes. And usually in these circumstances, there is involved a magical ring. 
And of course, hearkening back all the way to King Solomon, he also had a magical ring which with, with which he could connect and command natural forces. So I am very scientifically driven. There are times I'll be presented with something and I'll, I'll, I'll think quite clearly, well, one, where is the logic? And two, where is the science to back it up? And if I'm presented with academic rigor for or against an issue, then I will, I will change my theory. I will change my theory. I had to change my theory that the Knights Templar built the money pit on Oak Island. None of the dendrochronology coming out of the ground that's been given to us, it's been shared with us, has been from the Templar era. So that all comes from the, the mid 1600s. So that's another subject, but, but one must be willing to, to swallow a bit of pride and say, yes, I, I, I have to readjust my theory. But human beings are capable of incredible feats. We all are. It's just that most people don't know how to tap into them, don't believe they're real. They'll have an event happen in their life, they'll dismiss it. They'll have a dream, they'll dismiss it. They won't pay attention. And that's why the, the divine in our life, the quantum physics, if you will, is so often ignored. Uh, quantum mechanics is real. Yeah, and I love how you brought that up in your book. I was like, whoa, I didn't Death. realize this had all these connections into Templars and the history of the Templars. Absolutely. And uh, there is an image. I'm going to get this slightly wrong. Forgive me. I'm going to get this slightly wrong. Uh, I wish I could remember it entirely. But I, somebody sent me an image of a uh, particle of light, and it looks like a Templar cross. I was blown away. I truly was blown away. And we are are created to be able to interface interface if you will with the force i am actually a very big star wars fan and i i wanted to be a jedi when i grew up so i don't have a lightsaber but i'm still attempting the other paths that are available <laughs> to me on earth <laughs> but uh the the uh theory of entanglement is profound if you uh, uh, take two particles and you treat them the same way, you do, you maybe blast a little bit of electricity through them or they, they, you know, you, 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 you encode them with the same information. Then you separate them by miles, thousands of miles. You do something to one here, this will respond mm -hmm. instantaneously over here. So to say we are not connected is not scientifically possible. So we are all children of the great divine. And for myself, we've been sent a great teacher, somebody who cares about us very much, and the traditions that were laid down so many you know, centuries ago. There, these traditions are still here. They have filtered around the globe. And they are possible for us as human beings to meditate on, pray upon, actively work internally on, and express causing positive change in our life. And, of course, there are uh, those who use these gifts and capacity for ill. And that's, uh, 
uh, history is smattered with 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 uh, tales of good dragons, bad dragons, and wars, and uh, of individuals with superhuman powers. Um, there's an, a very interesting uh, legend of the Welsh flag, for example. The red dragon and the white dragon engage in battle in order to decide who is going to have supremacy in Wales. And of course, the red dragon on the white field becomes the winner. So are we talking about two actual dragons? Or are we talking about two individuals who were initiated and quarreled about who should have supremacy. And that brings up the dragon tradition in Europe, Merlin, Arthur Pendragon, which means mm -hmm. head, head dragon. It brings up that whole subject, which is a whole other uh, ball game and discussion. And one of the uh, objects, the, the black chalice on uh, lost relics that Carl and Hamilton took great pains to acquire and share with us was that glass is actually termed dragon glass. So that is a very unique piece from Eastern Europe. And that, that of course, brings in the, the dragon traditions across uh, Europe. And that is another way to explain a initiate of the human nervous system who has command of their own central nervous system. And India teaches this in a different way. Europe teaches this in another way, with a cross with roses on it. It's the same thing. It's just that it's taught with different cultural emphasis. So I hope I've not bent up your brains too much. <laughs> no, that's one thing I, I found interesting was how you connected it to the human anatomy and connected it again with uh, quantum physics and uh, those ideas. Uh, continuing the idea of sacred geometry, though, and uh, uh, along the same lines, uh, you also mentioned ley lines in the book. They're like these energetic veins of the earth. And then uh, do you call it the, the dragon energy of the earth in the book? Yes, I'm not the, the first person to couch it in those terms. But uh, the dragon energy of the earth, of the body, it's the same thing. There are those who have capacity, uh, such as saints, if you will. Uh, and this is not to, veneration of saints is one thing, worship is another. Anyone that you are working with, if you will, should not be worshipped, but certainly respected. So just to drop that on you. But yes, uh, everything has an energetic life, veins. Um, a central nervous system, if you will. And some are of subtle means. Uh, the, uh, if you look at Stonehenge, this is going way back. Uh, Stonehenge, at, they've discovered in recent years, has a line all the way to Woodhenge. And they each had specific functions. And the uh, processional way between Stonehenge and Woodhenge was that of ceremony. It was a vast avenue and meant for ceremony. And they have discovered many uh, Celtic roads that were built as wide avenues, but were not trod for day-to-day -day functions. 
they were processional ways aligned on energy networks. And the Romans, of course, took advantage of this. It was already there. They just paved over it, and then they used them. Uh, the Michael line, if you will, uh, Archangel Michael line, starting in Bury of St. Edmunds in eastern England, that cuts all the way down through to, uh, is it Land's End in Cornwall uh, and uh, to Mont Saint Michel? Uh, that's 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 a powerful line. Um, Basically, uh, uh, early Christians didn't, may have known, may have not known that they were preserving these ancient lines by putting a church on top of a uh, prior temple. Canterbury uh, Cathedral is on top of a Roman temple to Diana. That's it. That's uh, the, the Michael line. That's a very important line. And there are other important lines, known, unknown, and all evolving energy. And you can, if you walk them with your finger or your feet, take advantage of these energies. Uh, there are lines that are considered negative. So uh, by holding positive, strong, blessings, you can enliven a line, change it from negative to positive. Human beings uh, often don't understand that when they encounter power that is outside their daily activity, it's uh, often feared. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it is to be feared uh, unless you get scared then of course you're going to need to, to go do something else, leave. Uh, but most ley lines are positive and built upon by successive cultures and are still active today. Uh, yes, that's a, a very sacred place. It's beautiful. It is. And There's so many it, sites in France and throughout Europe that I would love to visit, and this is definitely oh, on that list. Oh, myself as well. The majority of Templar preceptories were in France, and uh, they did scatter out, of course, but that was their main uh, headquarters was Paris. And you can still... And they ended up burning that one down, didn't they? The headquarters in Paris? Yeah, that, that was destroyed. Temple Paris is no longer right. standing there. And the only mark left to where Jacques de Molay was executed is a plaque in the uh, ground on the edge of... Uh, I'm a bit dyslexic, so I'm going to get this wrong. I, it, it could be behind the cathedral or it's on the other island at its peak. But uh, with... With that said, what you can also see in Paris, if you go is take the, the round eye, uh, thank you for doing that. Yeah, I do think that that should be uh, further highlighted. Uh, I caught myself thinking last night, it would be a wonderful pilgrimage to go on with other individuals who would like to say thank you to Jacques de Molay for his service and yeah, for his for his integrity during the trials and for at the last minute saying in front of thousands of people, no, I, I, I am not going to state as the grandmaster of this order that we 
were blasphemous, heretical, or evil. So I was. Well, I guess uh, that's another that's question admired. I want to bring up. Yeah, for sure. I guess that's another question I want to bring up. Uh, at the end of uh, Jack Hughes de Molay's life, when he was burning on the stake there, he kind of gave away a curse to the the current pope and the the French king, if I'm correct. What do you what do you think as far as that? Well, if I were a police officer, I'm not, but if I were, I would say to myself, okay, within a year, the king is dead, his son is dead, the pope is dead, they all die of... of yeah, it was this um, weird occurrence. Yeah, and the church where the pope was laying in state was set on fire. So somebody was very, very angry, and it may not have been a report or a last shout it could have been we didn't have anybody with cameras uh, who, who was filming him at the time I would certainly like to have been wearing a cloak and have film footage um, uh, of that terrible event but needless to say it could be retrospective but it happened and uh, they paid a heavy price for their betrayal and uh, the order continued. There are uh, Templar orders, uh, some new, uh, as it were, some claiming to have lines of transmissions going back centuries. Now, this is where quantum physics and entanglement is important. Uh, I have heard people scoff and say, oh, you're not a Templar. Uh, there are orders who have documentation of transmission uh, individuals that have been anointed blessed saying okay here here is this document here is the seal of my order and this is from 1500 in France or 1450 in Germany please go forward and repeat these teachings to those you find worthy of, of, of hearing them. So um, if, you, if, if entanglement is correct, which it is, that original impetus going back to 1120 and continued post-1307 is still alive today because it kept getting passed down, passed down, passed down, passed down. DNA might have changed. It might have broadened out a little bit. The DNA may be the same. But that entanglement to those original minds and why they did what they did, they did it still resonates. It's still there. So uh, that's why I introduced quantum physics to the book. Um, just for kicks and giggles, one of the uh, theories that I did come away with and uh, quantum mechanics, it's, it's, it's almost what you would say is outside of time and space, the way, the way to think about this now, is that you have a linear path of, of say, uh, I'm not going to include the Homo sapiens going all the way back, but human beings have not been, according to science, knocking around for a good hundred, a couple hundred thousand years. Okay, but they've changed along the way by whatever mechanism or reason. That timeline stretching back 
beyond our comprehension, sits equally side by side with a time frame that's biblical of 5,000 years. So how does quantum physics able to say, um, this is my interpretation of it, that this linear is correct, but this is correct too. So just to mess up your brain a little bit, mess up your mind a little bit. So outside of time and space, this is possible. So I will not decry uh, someone uh, with a powerful faith in the Bible come to me and say, science is wrong, it's only 5,000 years. I will always come back and say, yeah, okay, here they both are. So don't worry about it, it's all right. <laughs> I hope that that is, comes across with a positive intention, which I mean that too. So, uh, and it's difficult. One man's uh, form of religion, and in this case, Christianity or Judea, you know, the three Abrahamic religions all come out right. of the same source. And no religion springs up out of the ground completely different from its predecessors. It, it just doesn't happen. So you have the, the Judaic thought in the Old Testament, and then, of course, you have a very high level initiatic teacher and, and uh, genetic king of Israel in exile, unfortunately, um, uh, demonstrating immensely powerful teachings. Uh, oh, I've lost my train of thought. Um, threat. Uh, I do not mean to at all counter anyone's faith. I'm just putting forward what I have learned over the years since studying the bloodline theory, the Templar theories, uh, Bernard de Clairvaux went to Southern France and talked to the Cathars. Some of them believed heartily that Jesus was nothing, uh, I don't want to say nothing but, but they believed he was strictly an apparition. Nothing, uh, according to their faith, one branch of their faith could come to this earth and remain pure. So they believed that Christ was actually a ghostly figure. And then there were others who had other thoughts such as the bloodline theories. So even in amongst the Cathars, you had very different wide views as to the nature of, of this uh, emissary. Uh, but uh, Bernard de Clairvaux went there and uh, came away very frustrated. Uh, there was one incident where he was in a church that had been deserted for some time and was trying to to talk to the local people please come back into the church please come back and uh, there were a group of uh, knights outside uh, the, probably the men of Toulouse uh, the Counts of Toulouse I might be getting this wrong I don't recall exactly where that was but but there were men outside bashing shields with their swords making a lot of racket and they basically drowned him out and he left and a bit chagrined I'm sure but he went back to to uh, France and said uh, the people of uh, southern France need a great deal of talking to but he did not advocate the sword. And he said that they were amongst the most pure Christians he had ever seen. So that says a lot about him. And that says a lot about how he felt about them, even though they embarrassed him highly, basically pretty well drove him out of Southern France. So I think there's an interesting irony here 
and the fact that, uh, especially with the Catholics, they think they're following this true form of the religion. But if you look at stuff like the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, what Jesus should have been, according to Old Testament, he should have been a rabbi that was married, that had children. That was what a lot of rabbis were called to do at that yeah. time, were to, were to have families in a marriage. So almost the Cathars and this original religion are more of a true form of Christianity than almost Catholicism or the other forms that we have today are. Yeah, and that's a difficult thing to say. Uh, but what I will say is I believe that millions of Catholics around the world are people of faith who wish to do the right thing in their life, and they do, and they are. And uh, there are 35,000 different Christian societies in the world. I cannot even begin, as somebody who's studied comparative religion, and I am thrilled to pieces to hear that you're studying anthropology but i cannot begin to tell you what all the differences are there are some very large populous forms of it that are being uh, such as american evangelism which is a very different creature to uh english protestants uh, irish catholics or then you've got the eastern uh orthodox churches which are very different different yet again but they all come under in my opinion the same uh brotherhood of of care and concern that we all want to do the right thing by our neighbor today by our family or by our friend most people you get you get your occasional baddie who wants to take advantage of other people and wants to become rich as a result either rich in a church or uh to have power but yet be disconnected from uh the true uh desire to serve and that is that is the hallmark of a great teacher and leader is how much do they serve and are not be and not having to have uh, versus self-service self-aggrandizement is is just not cool it's not on so that was one of the reasons bernard de clairvaux was so popular uh while he was slim and trim and didn't adorn himself with jewels and gold and and silk he wore white wool and everybody knew who he was because of it versus fat prelates that were wearing silks and and embroidered with gold and silver thread you know he served and that was what was important yeah, we got into a lot there, but uh, I wanted to ask you a question. You found an astonishing code hidden in a medieval Freemasonic tracing board, and uh, which would uh, often be used in the 18th century, these Freemasonic tracing boards to hide the secrets of alchemy. Uh, I wanted to ask you about what you think between the Knights Templar and the Freemasons and uh, the practice of alchemy and how all those might be related. That is difficult. Uh, I am the first to say that today there is a real anti-Freemasonic backlash right now. That is another subject in itself and a dangerous subject. Uh, I think that there are people who mean well. I think they've gotten a lot wrong. Uh, and in the past, there have been things that have been, been right in some of the, the, the Victorian Freemasons, for example. What I will say about alchemy is, is that it is a topic that the nobility could afford to practice. And it involved not only inner meditations and prayer work that was 
of a very rigorous nature, but also that's where we also come uh, up with chemistry. And that is a uh, out of out of uh, the Middle East. Uh, uh, alchemy is not Egypt. an English word. Yes, yes, it's not an English word. Uh, so um, the the uh, alchemy is tracing boards are an allegorical way to teach in pictures what one is being guided to learn and you you, you start out uh, with a, a platform a basis like any textbook you you teach in words or i'm sorry in pictures and gradually this gets more complicated layer upon layer upon layer upon layer and it's very helpful when communicating all at once what you're trying to say and only individuals who've been trained up to that point will understand what's being said but um, and I, I do not count myself as an expert but the floor of Solomon's temple is evident on the tracing board on the far right you have your stairway to heaven uh, the, the, the star uh, of, of uh, Jacob's ladder going up into the heavens the sun and the stars uh, it's it's full of meaning I, I'm on my phone here so I'm having trouble seeing everything but the uh, pillars outside of Solomon's temple of faith and wisdom mm -hmm. which are faith, the basis faith, hope, and charity, and that is also the basis for codifying and understanding the human energy body. Mm -hmm. uh, it's another way of expressing that. So again, I do not claim to be a, uh, there are individuals who have spent their entire lives studying alchemical tomes, but um, what I believe I may have found was uh, done by Hildegard, uh, von Bingen, Bingen uh, contemporary, she would have been about 26 years old, I believe, when Bernard de Clairvaux passed. And she uh, was an abbess, became a very powerful abbess. And she created a book which unfortunately uh, burned in a, a terrible fire at, at the abbey. Uh, uh, but the, um, somebody predating the fire at this archival center copied many of the illustrations. And that's what I came across. And it, the book is titled uh, The Garden of Delights, which is a very strange title for a woman who is in charge of a uh, abbey. But she was very well educated. She uh, had scribes that she worked with uh, to dictate uh, her thoughts on botany, on, on agriculture, on healing. Granted, she didn't get it always right, <laughs> but she did a, She was far and above what was uh, possible for, for the day. And what you have there is, is a protected circle with who I believe uh, is actually Mary Magdalene in the center. Outside of the protection circle are four evil beings who are writing down information that is of a sacred nature, but twisting it 
that is that is what she's trying to express there. But within the protection of that circle, you have the the uh, seven muses, which were uh, out of ancient Greece, and they each bore and represented a particular intellectual pursuit, such as astronomy, uh, seven healing, liberal arts. The seven liberal arts. Thank you. Yes, and you can see those seven streams coming out of the out of the uh, heart of Sophia, which means uh, uh, is Greek for wisdom. Uh, you'll hear the phrase the Sophia of Christ. Uh, so this is, I believe that she had some knowledge of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is very important in Germany, and. Within it, the more I started looking at this, this is unusual in the first place because this is a woman in the 1200s, early 1200s, uh, late 1100s, you know, who's 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 working on on these topics. And uh, at the let's see, you have geometry. Is it geometry at the? Uh, you have geometry is incredibly important because. Uh, the geometry figure is holding a compass that's almost her own height. And if you look at the folds of the skirt and the compass, they, they spell out the letter M. You will also see arithmetic. Arithmetic has an arch of beads she's counting of 23. The reason why 23 is important is because the seventh month on the 23rd day is the feast day of, of St. Mary Magdalene. You also have astronomy who is pointing at what I believe to be a representation in the night sky of Cassiopeia, but she's also holding a jar and the anointing vessel of uh, uh, that Mary Magdalene is associated with, it's her emblem, I believe is being held by the muse of astronomy in this case. And that is telling us that we have the 23rd day, we have our seven muses, uh, the, the philosophies, and uh, we have Cassiopeia and the night sky. And that is a throne the queen of heaven, and it revolves around the North Star. In Greek mythology, she's practically demonized as a vain and jealous woman, but that is not initiatic understanding. That is a warped exterior, physical, material understanding of this image. What you've got there is the knowledge uh, the Greek uh, phrase, know thyself. So she's holding up in her hand the mirror of self-knowledge, the capacity to actually go within and reflect. How, how am I doing? Uh, the talk of mindfulness is so present today. So it, it was not any different at this time. And now it's everywhere. But mindfulness was also part of the journey of the initiate. And here you have, as the Queen of Heaven going around the, the Christ, the North Star, who never moves, uh, the, the Mary Magdalene figure who is basically in a position of, of, of teaching her children, uh, taking that knowledge into France, 
Uh, but that is not the only example of that. And I do call that plate you showed early on a medieval tracing board because it, it tells a, a very complete story of intellectual knowledge and science being important along with the understanding that, that Christ had children and that God is big enough to have a human experience. And this is certainly a, a, a Freemasonic tracing board today. Uh, but uh, uh, so I believe I may have discovered a medieval tracing board developed by the abbess Hildegard and uh, uh, telling the story of Mary Magdalene and uh, the rabbi teacher uh, Christ. Um, so this story is very important in Germany and I had the good fortune of uh, spent having a short trip in Germany and, and took a photograph of a, uh, three figures above the gate of a castle and it was very dark at night, so I did not get a high quality, plus it was very high up. But there was a woman uh, standing next to an urn with three children, and I knew it was her. And in the center figure was a woman with a sword with her left leg bared. That's very Masonic. And then you have a priest who is not armed on, on the other side. So, oh, right, the figure of the urn is much smaller. But again, that's Mary Magdalene. And um, in, order to be Mar in order to be a rabbi, according to very strict Jewish tradition, you had to be married. So for, for uh, I do not think it is a stretch, and I'm not the only one to have said this. I'm on right, the we were talking about it before. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so fast-forwarding, uh, you have, uh, you know, uh, the tracing board of Hildegard. Um, I pho photographed these figures. There are many other incidences, and it does Freemasonry. I do think uh, looks like my battery may be slowing down. I'm going to switch the plug on my battery. If you would just give me a, a quick moment, I'm not sure. Oh no, that's why it fell out of the. That's why. Okay. Okay. All good? I apologize for that. <laughs> no, it's all good. Thank you for thank you for waiting for me, Jake. Nope, again, nope, that's why we had that screen there, just in case you needed to wonderful, do some you know, go I, somewhere. And I, I respect the belief system of other people, and I am not out to ruin anyone's belief system. My family is large, and it encompasses everything from extreme right to extreme left, and I respect them all. And that's what I think is important, is that we have that respect for each other whilst respecting their physical, uh, don't attack anyone for, for their belief system. It's just not, it's just not on. Thou shalt not kill. Come on, folks, you know. Right. And it's important so, to, if you want to have a full comprehension of something, to go at it from multiple angles, from the left, from the right, conservative, liberal. It's important to take all these ideas into into there's yes, certain respect to get do. the full story of everything. And I and think I'm you a, do the, a, that to a great extent in your book. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm a very mixed person myself. That that description uh, covers who I am as well. Uh, I very much embody embody that. I believe in human compassion with personal responsibility, and we are all independent, sovereign beings, and we are all gifted with free will. What we do with that free will impacts our future spiritual life after we transition from the physical, but also it leaves a legacy. Uh, how we, the kindnesses we show others is a legacy. You never know it, what smile, uh, what a smile might do for somebody or opening a door for someone, uh, you know, reaching up on the top shelf at the grocery, grocery store to get that for somebody much shorter, you know, you never know right. what that will do for them that day that's important. We're all entangled. We are all enmeshed. And how we bless each other or attack each other is important in ways we cannot imagine. Anyway, but yes, I, I some of these discoveries I feel very gifted to have come across. I do not, uh, how do I say this, uh, focus all my research strictly on what is available in modern terms online. That's an echo chamber. If you want to find something new, it helps to be on the ground. It helps to go there. It, get out of the echo chamber. Go find. Right. Go find out what the opposition is saying. Don't just take on board what you're being told. And that was true for the Templars. It's true today. So uh, the Templars in regards to Freemasonry uh, is, is uh, important. I do not remember the name of the uh, Scottish uh, knight nobleman who died in battle. Uh, I'm going to get this wrong, his name and the date wrong. <laughs> I believe it may have been the, the Civil War in uh, England. And he was a royalist and uh, older man, died on the battlefield. But he, underneath his clothing, he was wearing ancient armor. And it is believed that it was Templar. Mm. So uh, I wish I could remember his name, and and uh, but I believe he was of a Templar family. And in Scotland, I do not. And yes, and I, he was a royalist. I do not believe that that is circumstantial evidence. Uh, I I do not like the technique of taking on board something that was written down long ago and viewing it as coincidental. If you start putting all these coincidences together, true synchronicities, it broadens out as evidence uh, for a crime scene. And the crime scene was the false election of a pope in, in that, that brought down the Templars in collusion with the King of France. So these individuals became loyal to their grand master of whatever country they found themselves in, became separated from each other and carried on their initiatic traditions in their uh, own countries and kingdoms, which was ran alongside and was not separate from the religion of the day. 
uh, the Templar's flag is, or uh, forgive me, um, the skull and crossbones, for example, is straight out of Templarism, the Jolly Roger, flown by uh, the king of Sicily, Roger. Uh, he was quite the party boy, and he actually flew the skull and crossbones. He was a patron of the Knights Templar. And he bumped heads with Bernard de Clairvaux as well. So <laughs> just because you're a Templar or, or a patron of the Templar doesn't mean that you're going to be friends with the inner guard at all times. But, but that's where the skull and crossbones came from. It's the head of John the Baptist. And uh, of course, he was famously beheaded. Uh, and so they took on that very dark imagery. And when the Templars escaped from La Rochelle, one of the ports that we know about, they went into a secret war against Vatican vessels, and they harangued them, and they, uh, they became pirates. And uh, La Rochelle is wonderful, it's beautiful, it's small, and slightly disappointing. And I was, there's nothing there any longer of the Templar footprint except for a couple of towers. And that was due to um, Richelieu, very powerful warrior uh, proponent of, of uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, so he uh, basically raised to the ground the a good portion of the coastline of France. And I was uh, astounded at the destruction uh, and disheartened by it. It went inland. I mean, uh, by car, Chateau de la Rochefoucauld by car is five hours away to, to La Rochelle. And he penetrated inland quite a, quite a ways. And of course, the Huguenots swept through and they destroyed anything that was Papal, but in so doing, they also deleted significant Templar carvings, artifacts. Uh, they helped to destroy an entire sector of what I, I would call uh, wood, the wood carving trade. Yes, I was very, I was so glad that I went. I would like to go back. There are things that I was not able to It's another to side on my bucket list for sure. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's big. It's... Um, Certainly, the family today is still important. The, uh, I think it was about six months ago that the surrounding area became renamed Rochefoucauld County, if you will. So they are a very important family, even today. And how they maintained through, from the Vikings onward, on up, through revolution, etc. And from what I understand, the revolution did hit the castle and burned much of their archival material. So, you know, when it comes to this infighting of let's go destroy books and burn records, it just, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And, and we lose so much of our human history. Right. And it makes and, me think and, of you know, the Library of Alexandria and how much yes. wisdom we could have had if they didn't yeah. burn that down. You know, uh, uh, you get a you get a religious group that gets all hot and bothered. That they're right, and then the next thing you know, you get burning books, and then right. we lose significant chunks. Or there's a war, and Roche or Richelieu leveled 
entire villages and towns and cities. And, you know, and granted, they were already struggling because the Huguenots had gone through prior. And uh, uh, it's the, the relics, the physical remains of Mary Magdalene um, said to be in, in southern France at different locations. Uh, they, uh, they were supposedly eventually interred at Vézelay, the Cathedral of Vézelay, and that has a very important relationship to her. It's a very beautiful, unique cathedral, but they were ransacked. And uh, uh, I can't remember which branch of the church gifted a... Uh, do you need to get your phone, Jake? Are you, are you all right? <laughs> no, sorry. It's a, it's a brother from Lodge calling me. I'll, I'll call him after we're done here. I did have hey, a good question. Burning. Yes, yeah. forgive me. I do tend to leap around quite a lot. And, uh, no, it's all good. I, this is coming from Sharon Irving Thompson on Facebook, and she was asking if the Templars had Viking ancestry. Yes, unequivocally, yes. I'm still looking into uh, family names, but I do believe I can pin it down. If you, if you the, look at the greatest Viking raider of all time, that was William the Conqueror. He, uh, his his uh, uh, lineage is Norse. And the Norse, uh, Rollo, of course, Rollo is famous now for anyone who watches Vikings. Uh, the Vikings had raided Paris successfully. Uh, the king of Paris was ready next time, however, and built, uh, built defenses in the river to prevent the Vikings from penetrating further inward. But the king of Paris decided, all right, I've got to get Rollo uh, to become the king of Duke. I'll, I'll royalize him, I'll make him all but a prince, and I'll marry him off to my daughter as long as he promises to protect the mouth of the river Seine from his own kith and kin, from his own culture. So uh, that is exactly what happened, Normandy, Norsemen. Uh, the information that he embodied flowed into the Parisian court at that juncture and flowed down through to 1066 when William the Conqueror decided to go across uh, the uh, uh, channel 22 miles across with his ships and horses and fighting men, the Normans, uh, to take the throne of England. So yes, they are directly directly related, and the uh, Cistercian Bernard de Clairvaux hails from a county just east of Normandy, and that that academic mind of Bernard de Clairvaux would not have under what's been, he, he would not have been underwhelmed by the Norse connection. So yes, yes. No, I think that's and, like a major component to how they were able to get across the ocean, as far as absolutely. I'm and concerned. and frankly, they had I'm the not... knowledge in the eight hundreds with Leif Erikson, Eric the Red, uh, Leif Erikson, literally meaning yes. in Swedish Eric's son, Eric yes. the Red. And this so is uh, I think that's how they got across. Site. Absolutely. Yeah, and this I is one saw of a the, picture with the, of you with uh, a Viking sunstone. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah, this is, I found that this, fascinating. The Viking sunstone I, is such a cool thing. You can only get this in in, in um, Norway, optical calcite. You, it's 
pure crystal, you can see right through it. You can incise lines on it to help you find your level and, and find the sun on a cloudy day. And they were well versed with other uh, forms uh, of, of uh, surveying, such as uh, potentially, uh, there, there you go. And yes, there's some, and jo uh, Josh Gates did a wonderful episode. Yeah, that's immediately what came to I, my mind. I didn't know if you I saw that Josh one or not. Gates. Yes, I, I don't think Josh Gates. I love uh, that episode he did on the Viking Sunstone. Would respect my take on all of this entirely. But uh, I think he's incredible, and that was a fantastic episode. Uh, absolutely, one must watch it. Uh, but the uh, the Norse have been going to North America for centuries, and they passed that information down to the Templars. And it may have been a source of gold, lumber, uh, fish. The, we know the Portuguese were fishing up there, cod fishing. So Portuguese Templars, you know, so, so yes, uh, they, there is a DNA link. The original uh, Templars were out, of, were out of France. So it would have been unthinkable that, that uh, at least a few of them would have been absent of, of Norse Scandinavian uh, knowledge and, and DNA. And those uh, techniques of sailing went forward into England as well, because William the Conqueror took England, and uh, an Elizabethan warship was uh, discovered, excavated, and in a navigation box, a piece of optical calcite was found in the navigation box. So this would have been technology of a highly guarded secret in the same way that we protect, protect secrets today. Uh, you will pay with your life if you try to steal them. Uh, you, you know, these are the high technology of the day. And, of course, breaking into the Pentagon today is considered uh, considered uh, a perilous task. Uh, you just yeah. don't do those things. You, know? the least. <laughs> you, just, you just don't do that. <laughs> so, right. so individuals are going to find themselves hard-pressed if they try to take state secrets navigation secrets away and of course we regard those secrets today i believe it was only and i'm going to get this wrong i put it in my book fairly recent history history was it 2010 i think uh again i get it i'm going to get this wrong where our gps uh, the average citizen's gps was perfected by 100 feet so Mm. Army, police. Oh, everybody. yeah, the GPS technology today is insane how accurate it is. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, they gifted, they gifted us, the civilians, with that higher level of, of technology, um, 2010, something like that. They've had it for much longer. I'm sure that they have greater uh, capacities and um you know, certainly to, to, to just give that away would be unwise. That's your, your uh, edge over your, your potential uh, invader, enemy, etc. So, yes, we're, they were human beings, same as we are today. We've reached our genetic potential because we eat well, we live longer. Uh, 
we're not dying from battle wounds that could not be healed by uh, modern surgeons and antibiotics, but uh, they were quite intelligent. Not all of them were literate, uh, but uh, with under their umbrella, under their roofs, they had scholars, they had farmers, they had business managers, they had accountants, they had warriors, they had knights, they had clergy. They had a community, they had a world that existed alongside towns and villages and cities of our medieval ancestors. And many of them left children behind. Um, who knows about your own uh, background, Jacob? It, it could be you could have a foot in that world and not know it. So you may have. A well, you want to know something that's interesting? I did find out I am the descendant of a evil Swedish king, King Olaf. Oh! <laughs> so there's something. I, I doubt it's connected to the Templars in any way, but I did find that interesting. That's exciting. It's exciting to find out. Genealogy is so cool. And my mom's watching and she's a huge advocate for that. Yes. I, I, it was not popular uh, to, to, for the average person to partake of until about 25 years ago, maybe 30. I'm glad it's prevalent the way it is today because it's giving us a chance to understand our ancestors, and that includes Templars, to a greater level than, than we had known before. So it's another way of, of understanding history. It's exciting. It truly is. Exactly. But um, I do think that the Templars and Templarism flowed into Rosicrucians, uh, the Rosicrucians, and also to uh, the Freemasons. Uh, I think that there, I've had uh, whispers of individuals today that... that... We were talking about the Fama Fortunatus with Jeff the other day, the, the Rosicrucian yes, painting. Yes, yes. That's and a, how they a, possibly a, tie in. They do, they do. Uh, I'm in touch with uh, Rosicrucians um, on the East Coast that... that uh, uh, Amorc, A-M-O-R-C... No. American Order Risk no. Christians? This is in Pennsylvania. This is in Pennsylvania. Okay. But they uh, are very academically driven and they have uh, links of transmission going back to France and into Germany to the 1400s. And at that juncture, uh, there was an attempt to save and rescue uh, any remaining Templar streams and to refocus them for the individuals of that time frame in the 14 to 1400s and uh it is a it is a templar stream in itself um the lodges that came out of scottish freemason or scottish templarism uh, are are very interesting uh, of course english freemasonry is different yet again uh, it's it's important to note that there are are uh, difficult people in any large organization, but a lot of the negative concepts about that are sloshing around about uh, Masons today come from World War II and Hitler. There is a very good book uh, which is sadly out of print. It's very academically dri driven. Perhaps it's even I would call a hard read. It is called. The Red Triangle. 
And Hitler, of course, did his uh, was smart. He uh, rounded up everybody who could mount an intellectual, legal opposition to him. And so what he did was he started with propaganda. Uh, he rounded up some two million Freemasons across Europe, and he executed them. And some of them were also Rosicrucians, but uh, the and they wore red triangles. So uh, after that, he went after the Jewish population base. That hangover, as I call it, is still prevalent and has uh, flowered, unfortunately, today. It is being misunderstood, misconstrued. Do I think there's a global world order? Um, not on that front. Yes, that's it. Yes. Yeah, it took me a while uh, to find it. it. Read it if you can get a hold of a copy. I, I would love to urge the author and the publishing company that put that book out to please get this thing back in circulation. It is an important, highly researched, credible document. And I, I despair at the levels of conspiracy theories that are out there today uh, that, that throw without thought, without true investigative research, claims of such a high evil nature that the human mind can't even get their head around. Right. Well, I come um, from a Masonic background and there's so much, so, so many different allegations against the Masons. And I, I go to Lodge and I hang out with all these brothers and I'm like, how can you think that these people would want to kill babies or take over the world or all these terrible oh. allegations? That's and this just, is where people get upsetting. I will say this in brief. The reason why uh, the Catholic Church, and this will be offensive to some, and I apologize, but, but if you are a Catholic, you cannot be a Freemason. Well, go back a number of centuries, and Catholicism was the only game in town until Reformation movements uh, came into place. It's the only religion in Europe. So you have these Templar impetuses that are based in potentially teachings from John the Baptist through to his uh, cousin uh, uh, who, who was anointed and Christed to be king, uh, down through the centuries to the Templars who guarded the, 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 the Holy Grail bloodline and their initiatic traditions, uh, to Hitler who, uh, who wanted to strip it all away for his own uh, self aggrandizement, ego, megalomania, and also, I would say, mental illness. But he was the blackest of black occultists you could find. Yeah, I was going to say, he did a lot of stuff with the occult and esotericism evil man. to try evil to promote his views of Arianism and, and the idea of this perfect race. And that, like anything, it can be used for, for good or evil. And it's upsetting that for he evil. used it for, yes. for evil in that case. Well, Christ was born into a strict Judaic culture. He had, you know, he was a man of color. He wasn't blonde or blue-eyed. He was a. That's man the of European color. conception. Yes, but on a on a on a note, um, uh, that's a human thing. A God who looks like somebody that we can relate to. 
Mm-hmm. So, so there's the separating out the human feeling and emotion and wanting something you can relate to in a personal relationship with the individual is different from the historical situation. And uh, many near-death experiences uh, that have been uh, cataloged uh, discuss the individual coming back from having met Christ. And this is often uh, an image shown to us that we can relate to and typically looks like the person that we expect to find. And they're usually in these near-death experiences of our own race and color, which is really interesting. So yeah, that's the, the, the great divine mind, the great nature of being kind to us and our capacity to handle that kind of information. So uh, that's a that's a kindness, but but no, he spoke Aramaic. He was born into a Jewish culture. He was expected to get married, to follow the, the Sabbath, to to uh, uh, have children, and and then he brought in a new ball game and uh, did so successfully. Uh, it's only been the hand of human writers since that have made a mess of it. So. Uh, but to get back to Freemasonry, um, read the book, The Red Triangle, if you can get a hold of it. Uh, Hitler uh, was the one who started this, and it's been grabbed a hold of and continued. And what I would like to say regarding a new world order is this. This will disappoint some, anger others, and I'm probably going <laughs> to get a lot of nasty emails. Uh, it's important to tell the truth. It's important to be factual. Look at those who have money today, and I'm not talking about anyone earning 500000 a year. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the billionaires and the millionaires that have since been able to leverage their situation on the back of 2008 and so, uh, further successive financial crashes, one that went unreported about a year ago, actually. Uh, so every time there's a crash, people with a certain amount of money can leverage it and know how to, how to grow it. The opportunities that I had as a younger person 30 years ago to go out and get a job, if that was my desire today, those have decreased. Opportunities are decreasing all over the place. The bulk of the money is held by very few people at the top. Now, these are not all of European descent. They are not the J.P. Morgans. They are not the Rothschilds. Those individual Victorians, they're, they've passed. What I will say is some of their institutions remain, but they also invite today individuals from other cultures and countries to work in their corporate structure but uh, there are more millionaires and billionaires in India than probably anywhere else. So what are we talking about? What new world order are we talking about? China, fast up and coming, and is, is a huge uh, uh, money wheel. They're rich, they're powerful. And uh, so, you know, the, the myth of the rich... European bloodline that wants to turn into a, an alien and fly over your house and steal your free will. That is not accurate. 
so I challenge that. And I would say with some humility and, and grace, please listen to those on another side. Investigate what you're being told. The truth is always somewhere in the middle. It's never uh, uh, presented as, as it really is. So I didn't intend to bring this up, but since you are a Ludge brother, I will uh, state that I do not hold ill will towards Freemasons. They have a philanthropic, moral compass and ethical standard that is high. I, I kind of, I'm trying to come back into a circle here before I get what I meant to say. Uh, Catholicism does not want its people to sign on to Freemasonry going back hundreds of years because of a, a very practical scenario. You want to keep your people tithing. If they start tithing somewhere else, if they start gifting somewhere else, you'll lose your money base to continue to maintain your big, impressive cathedrals, uh, museums, organizations. That would be a serious blow to their economy. So, you know, don't think that a religious organization isn't worried about their bottom line. They are. All organizations are worried about their bottom line because they have to perpetuate themselves. If you can't pay yourself a salary, you've got to go get a job. <laughs> so, you know, it's always the human need for shelter, food, uh, drive for prestige in whatever way it can be acquired, whether it's through money and wealth, ease, being able to hire a cook, cleaner, have slaves. So don't think that individuals in a large religious organization are immune from the uh, aggressive side of human nature. So, and with I that, that uh, yeah, that does. Thank you. And uh, with that, I'm going to take a short break here and then we'll be back to, to wrap everything up. Thank you. Jenny, a listener, was asking, do you have any thoughts on the Bayou Tapestry? I have not studied that in any depth, uh, so I would not be able to comment on that. I, uh, if I remember right, it's possible that um, women from the prior household were forced to make it. I don't know. Uh, there is a, a legend in England that he did not die on the battlefield, Harold, but that he was allowed to live on the Isle of Sheppey until his death. Uh, likewise, his son uh, was created a uh, nobleman and allowed to live out his life. Uh, the Isle of Sheppey is just north of the Isle of, of Thanet, where I have lived for many years. Uh, but no, I am not as familiar. Uh, what I did include in my first book was I tried to create a chronology of physical objects related to Mary Magdalene. And the most recent was that of 1624 with the uh, uh, Julius Schiller constellation uh, images. His particular, uh, and sorry, Jenny, I don't mean to dismiss you. It's just I, if, if you're looking for a particular answer there, 
it is not the tapestry is not something I'm well versed in, other than some of the legends surrounding it. So, do you have any other questions around that? I think that was the only other listener question that I'm seeing here, but we we can wrap it up unless you have anything else that you want to want to mention. Just to drop, just to drop Julius Schiller and his uh, cast, uh, constellation renaming of Cassiopeia as Mary Magdalene. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, image. And she's very similar in tone to the Mona Lisa looking over an empty sarcophagus. So it's interesting, you have the medieval tracing board that I found uh, with evidence of Mary Magdalene in it and a connection to uh, Cassiopeia, uh, Julius Schiller, and uh, she's portrayed often as uh, the Black Madonna enthroned, um, the mysterious Black Madonna. But what's interesting about the Julius Schiller constellations is that uh, Mother Mary, Jesus's mother, is not portrayed in the new constellation map. So he took all of the Greek constellations and he then imposed his, uh, the Christianized saints uh, instead, but he left out uh, Mary, uh, the mother of, of Christ. Uh, yes, Black Madonna imagery uh, is, is fascinating, and that could be an allusion to hidden knowledge, which I think is highly likely, and uh, the daughter, daughter Sarah, uh, being, which is, Sarah it literally means uh, princess in Hebrew. And Sarah, the Egyptian, came with Mary Magdalene on her boat to the shores of uh, southern France and uh, is the hidden daughter, if you, if you will, of, of uh, Christ. And um, I believe there may have been two others, maybe uh, two sons. Uh, that is potential. As well. So is there an important uh, symbolic side to the use of the Black Madonna? And uh, is that, uh, well, the Madonna child, is that in any way connected to uh, what I've heard with Horus and Isis? Yes. Um, uh, Isis is actually the first representation in human history of a Madonna figure enthroned. So she's literally seated on the throne with Horus, her, her child. And Isis had to rescue Osiris. Uh, he had been tricked into a coffin by uh, Set. And Set was a strange uh, character who could do good things and wicked things as well, in this case, wicked. So uh, Set dismembered poor Osiris and scattered his body hither and yon. And uh, Isis disguised herself uh, in order to in infiltrate households, uh, locations, so that she could regather the body parts of her husband. In one case, she covered her face in coal and soot so that she would look like a lowly servant to retrieve uh, one, some, of the, some of the pieces. And she put him back together, resurrected him, and uh, they had uh, Horus together. So 
again, this might be heretical viewing, but if you think about Moses in the court of the, the Egyptian household, being educated in Egyptian ways and eventually besting the Egyptian priesthood, that's an interesting correlation idea. So he's basically probably bringing the best of, of what he felt was out of the Egyptian household and uh, into what would be the uh, Abrahamic Judaic tradition, uh, that Egyptian tradition that went down and included women. Uh, the importance of Mary Magdalene then becomes much more interesting uh, as, a, as a result, not only as a, uh, a gene genetic transmission, but also as a uh, ISIS figure in, uh, in Christianity. So yes, uh, that is my thought on the Black Madonna as well. It's a tradition coming out of Egypt. Um, but yeah, so it's yes. like the earliest representation of the of mother and child, just like Mary and Christ, yes. Horus yes. and Isis, and there's several other examples, but most of them are slipping mm -hmm. me right now. Yes, uh, if you get a chance to look up Julius Schiller and the constellations, it is in my book. What one of the images is, I had to get permission from uh, Lindahl Lindahl uh, Library to use the use the image in my book, but um, they don't just let anybody have it. But there should be some representations online if you'd like to. But uh, she is the most recent that I have been able to find uh, representation of Mary Magdalene as Cassiopeia. And uh, so there is a, a line going back. And then, of course, one might, there she is. Uh, she has her staff of uh, royalty. Um, she's holding an orb. Uh, or no, she has, that's the vessel, uh, the anointing vessel. And just below in, in uh, yeah, so that's uh, the emblem for the city of Magdeburg uh, in uh, Germany, uh, which is a young woman. Uh, defending a tower, and of course, Magdalene, Magda, Magdalene means tower, quite literally, uh, Mary of Magdalene. So, so it is an interesting flow of, of traditions and information, and this is just a smattering. And the most recent was discovered by Scott Walter, which is the Statue of Liberty. And in France, there are scattered around some 450 different uh, Statues of Liberty. Uh, much smaller in stature, of course, but you can see her uh, on uh, one of the islands uh, in Paris. So, so, no, it's all right. Just to throw, throw, uh, throw, try this up a bit and throw, throw a bit at you. But M is very important, and M in the night sky becomes a W, and that's because of Cassiopeia, uh, some Mary Magdalene ends up as a representative representation of uh, if you put the, put the two together as as uh, diamonds three diamonds or a double-sided pyramid for people so it, it, it's uh, it's quite a subject and it is an important subject well, it is important to state that there could be as many as 35 million descendants today and that uh, one must work hard to serve humanity. And I have had people approach me and say that they are the next Messiah. 
for myself, if you can't raise someone from the dead, if you can't walk on water, then you need to go home and practice. So um, it's important to remain humble and to acknowledge the value of all humanity in the eyes of uh, the great divine uh, of God, the force. Yes, the, the Statue of Liberty is out of the French tradition. And I see the, the M sign on her left hand. Yes, yes. I have come across some 200 other paintings of similar hand gestures as well. So she's awesome. fascinating. Yes, thank you for your time. I'm yeah, glad that sorry. You reached, reached out to me, and um, I hope that that uh, what I've shared today may, may shed light on various subjects, but it is important that we reconsider who we think is the new world order. If you take away all of uh, these weird secret supposed rituals and boil it down to just looking at numbers and bank account details, you'll have a truer accounting across the world of who actually has money and who doesn't. And I am including uh, Republicans and Democrats in that because anybody above a certain amount of financial aptitude and is into the millions and billions is part of that 1% uh, that goes around the globe. Uh, London is a financial city center. Uh, I have to admit, I, I acknowledge that, that the Duke of Kent is the head of, of the lodge in England. I am not a fan of his because I understand he's quite racist in his leanings. So I would like to point that out. So it's not simple. It's not easy. And you have to do your research. Do not believe everything you put on the table in front of you. Take away all the special weird abilities of shape-shifting, etc. Because I can tell you that is not part of the scenario. And I'm sure I will get a lot of uh, nasty messages for stating this. I hadn't intended to do your research. Money is for money's sake. Power is for power's sake. That is the motivation. And you do not have to have superpowers in order to have a lot of money. It's how you use it that matters. So that is what I would like to stress. Yeah, and that was good. And I'll have one last question here before we wrap it up because we've been going at it for quite a while and it's been very good. Thank you. But uh, you've obviously put together a wonderful book. The Secret Dossier has a ton of research in it and it's it's very well researched. There's tons of very interesting information. If you guys haven't read it, definitely, definitely go check it out. I got my copy here. But uh, I, I want to I wanna ask you uh how have you responded to to feedback about your book both both positive and negative i am grateful to date that it's been mostly positive i have had a few very strange things happen from quarters that surprised me facebook is a, is a a necessary evil as far as i'm concerned but when i first came on facebook i was very naive i'm not anymore uh, I have been besmirched by uh, the academic community. I had six individuals uh, troll me. They were all academics. 
And I want to state clearly, uh, academics are important. But if you decide to become a sneering troll on Facebook, you've just done yourself a disservice. So I had that happen. Uh, because of the imagery in my book, I also ended up drawing attention from Middle Eastern extreme groups that are known to be violent. And uh, they've left me alone. Uh, it's been pretty quiet for about eight months now, but uh, they are uh, constantly trying to uh, uh, get my attention in one way or another that is distressing. I have had a few individuals recently uh, message me and say the, uh, the most outrageous things of who I am, who I support, and my capacity as a, a human being. I can unequivocally say I don't have a spaceship. I'm not immortal. Uh, I am of humble means. I work hard. I care about people and integrity and good research is what everyone in this world today should be focusing on. So I am trying to keep a low profile to some degree, but that's probably ended as of this uh, interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not very big, so you don't have to worry about us. <laughs> Who knows? Give it, give, it a, give it a year or two, Jake. You could be drawing in <laughs> different audiences. But I worry about the average Freemason. I worry about the average person who is branded a shape-shifting reptilian alien. It makes me angry. Yeah. They, uh, I can tell you right off the board, uh, they're not uh, with these powers. The, the world of the UFO is, is a big subject. I will leave it off to the side. I cannot connect with that right now because it's too big. Um, but it is another matter. And this world is populate, populated by blood human beings who go to work every day, we get up every day. They uh, walk and talk the same way. Uh, the Templars, I think, had higher gifts of insight, of maybe even just a, a gut instinct to, well, instead of going here, maybe you should go here. Now, everybody can say that. And if you start listening to your human inner intuition, which is a gift, then good things happen. If you're taught how, and even better things happen. And you can be a blessing to the people around you. But that doesn't mean you're out to rule the world, nor can you. Those who, can, who are out to rule the world have amounts of money that the normal average human being, and I count myself in that, they'll never see in their lives. Ever. So, you know, and you must lump that, that group of, of people who have that amount of money as all in the same bubble because they all use the same system of acquisition. And most uh, Americans are a paycheck and a half away from being on the streets because we don't know what we're doing with the money that we have. We all need to, to teach ourselves. I wish they would teach it in school. How to use a checkbook for two years before you graduate. And if they do how teach it, they don't teach it enough. They don't do anything like that. How to spot somebody who might be trying to manipulate you, coerce you, mm -hmm. how to defend yourself against somebody who is 
flattering you overly much because they want something out of you. We just grow for the most part. We don't know how to do these things. They're not taught in school. I think it's getting better. But, um, uh, you, you know, the average American, the average person around the world does not know how to leverage the funds that they've got in order to partake of this wheel. So, yeah, and that's another, another conversation in itself. But it starts with education, two years of it in school. And I really think that we need two years of, of uh, community service. You know, I think all teenagers should, should be drafted into helping elderly people clean up the parks. You know, uh, uh, teach them that they're part of the communities. Uh, teach them that they're, they're, uh, the neighbor next door might not be doing so well and might not be able to take out the, the trash. You know, so we really need to start pitching into our own communities more and understand what real human life is actually all about and get off our TVs more. And, and start understanding how real money works, real people live, and the practical nature of day-to-day -day living in life and how businesses run. Uh, just briefly, and I'm sorry to keep this going on, but I would like to say that people that partake heavily of a conspiracy theory need to be careful that they're not being used. When you're involved in secret knowledge, it makes you feel special that you're in the know, that you're one of those rare people that has something mm -hmm. that other people don't have. I, I can tell you that anybody with special information still feels the same things. They're still human. They still have physical things that happen. They can break away. They, they can get the flu. All of We're still human. Um, but if you find that you are involved in an, an extreme conspiracy theory, chances are you might have some self-esteem issues in your life. You may not have the job you want. You may feel disheartened by the relationship you're in. You're not communicating with your family or your spouse the way you'd like to. There are all sorts of reasons. We've just come out of a devastatingly difficult year of COVID. Millions of people around the world are, are having to deal with this economically, through isolation, through whatever means you're being afflicted, hopefully not a death in the family. Um, India is being hit very, very hard right now. But, uh, and that's, again, that's a separate kettle of fish over here, but we have all had to isolate. So we're coming out of that now. Isolation can drive human beings to be very, to drop their guard. If you drop your guard and you let something in that's not good for you, isn't based in logic or fact, you're going to have troubles. So just guard your thinking. Are you partaking of something that is giving you a false sense of uh, elevation that you are frankly not entitled to? Let's put it that way. Okay? Be careful of somebody that flatters you too much. They might want something from you you can't afford, and it's usually always money or your time. So that is how I would like to round that out. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that was good. Uh, again, I want to thank you for joining us today. There was a lot of good information covered. And uh, if you guys haven't checked out her book, The Secret Dossier, definitely check that out. And uh, stay tuned a... for 
more Thank information you. as far as uh, the research that you've been doing, because I know you can have a few other books that we could have talked about. And, I have uh, about five five projects on a back burner that I just yeah. So stay tuned. <laughs> Tons of great research. But yeah, again, I want to thank you for joining us. I do have uh, a limited number of copies available on my website, Gretchen Cornwall. And you do signed copies as well, right? Yes, I've only got about 11 copies left right now here in the USA. So that's not very many. And, so go uh, grab those. Uh, go grab those. That would be wonderful. Thank you for your time. And do keep yeah, in touch. You. I appreciate it. It's nice yeah, to I appreciate it. Thank you Thank to you. all of you who have watched with us. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye.